Well, Church of the City, as we've uh, come here together and we've been worshiping, I'm going to lead you in this passage of scripture, do some teaching on it. And as we do that, though, I'm just going to ask us to do something that Nick already suggested. First is to take a deep breath. Now, why do we do that? There's actually some neuroscience in that. Because when you take a deep breath, it touches your central nervous system that's running down your body. And what it does is it allows you to relax and slow down. It's an amazing thing. It's contrary to what happens when you're hyper and your breath comes short and quick and fast. But when you actually slow down and do that, the neuroscience says that you're sending a message to your brain that you're actually thinking how you want to live. And you're slowing it down. That's a wonderful thing. It allows you to come into the presence of God with a sense of anticipation and joyfulness as long as you bring that consciously to your prayer and that moment of a deep breath. And then I want to lead you in prayer. So let's just take a moment to come into his presence personally and then I want to lead us in his presence corporately. Let's do that together. Father, I am grateful as we come into your presence that we don't have to inform you about every, circumstances, every circumstance of our lives because you know us better than we even know ourselves. By that we mean not only do you know what we've experienced, you know what we think about what we've experienced, how we're processing or avoiding, how we are running from or running to and today, as we've come into your presence, we're asking that your spirit would speak through your word, as he already has, as we've been worshiping. But we recognize, too, that we need to be involved in a process of realignment. Consciously, intentionally, purposefully, considering who you are and who we are before you, and asking, Father, as we've already referred to it this morning, uh, to be honored in our lives and to move us from where we are to where we need to be, even, Father, if we're not clear about what that means fully. Meaning we trust you, we're willing to trust you more, we're wanting to practice our faith in you, believing that you have our good on your heart because you've declared that. And you want good for us that we might even be incapable of choosing for ourselves. Such is your nature. You're good and kind and faithful. You're gentle. You bring peace and joy and love. You're remarkable. You, of course, are full of holiness and justice, and were those the only things we knew about you, we would approach you with fear and kind of trembling that knows we're not what we need to be. But what you've shown us is that love predominates, and you chose to be what we could never become, perfect in human form, and in that form to die on our behalf, so that our sins could be paid for, expunged, the debt settled, 
the barrier crossed, moved from darkness to light. All of these wonderful metaphors are in the scripture. We're praying you'd remind us of how deeply loved we are and all the work you've done for us. So as we choose to be realigned to you, Father, we would find that a joyful experience, neither threatening nor harm-inducing, but something that we choose, knowing we receive from you your best. Uh, we saw pageantry if we saw any of the pictures of the coronation of our sovereign, uh, King Charles III. We thank you for the government that operates under that constitutional monarchy in our own nation. Pray for our own prime minister that we might walk in peace and continue to have the freedoms that we've enjoyed to be able to share our faith and hope in our city. We're praying also that you would bless his reign and that as a man of influence within his own nation and ours, Father, that that would be powerful for good and for your glory. We're praying for ourselves as we saw that pageantry. It reminded us one day there will be a coronation of the Lamb. And everything we've seen on television will pale by comparison. As angels sing and fall before your throne, as our voices join with all creation and exalt you as we've always wanted as your followers and set free in the newness of the life of the resurrection of Jesus. It's amazing. Thank you for glimpses of that that fuel our hope. Thank you for your word that continues to be a light to our path. Thank you that you who are for us will never be against us. And as we dip into your word today, we pray that it would continue to align us to you in your nature holy, good, kind, and faithful. And that we might rise and join you and serve you where we work, live, and play for your glory and the good of our city and country and world. In Jesus' name, amen. In the passage of Scripture that um, we're given, I want to introduce it by just telling you a little bit about my own life. I grew up in a lumbering, mining, fishing town called Campbell River on the east coast of uh, Vancouver Island in a small community, maybe 10,000 at the time I lived there. And because of that, I was familiar with a slide you're going to see, a competition called um, log rolling. And the object of this, these are lumber people, these are lumberjacks, these were people who worked in the industry, and they would have lumber games, they would have loggers games. And the whole goal of this was to unseat your opponent by controlling the log and spinning in a direction, putting them off balance and getting them all wet. But I think it's an excellent metaphor for us as Christians. We are constantly encountering within our culture things that knock us off balance things that challenge us and we can feel like we're on slippery ground or we don't have solid footing or how are we going to respond to that? Because within my own generation, a man now who's in his, I hate to say this, but late 60s, can you believe it? Well, yes, you can because you look at my face and I see that in the mirror and sometimes I say to myself, how did that happen? Well, it does as you continue year to year celebrate birthdays and you consider the alternative, I'm glad that God has granted me life. But you know what I'm saying is, 
as we continue to journey, as we have this experience, we're living within a culture that has shifted. It's changed. Values that once we adhered to, we have switched those values. We have changed as a society about what we think it means to be part of the Canadian culture. We would, even as we describe our faith, need to be aware of how the questions the culture is asking may not be the questions that we've been taught to answer. They're asking new questions. They're asking different outcomes, as it were. We live in what I would call a pluralistic, relativistic, and individualistic approach to values, ethics, and beliefs. In other words, most people think, well, it's okay for you, but as for me, what do they mean right away is values are self-determined. They are what I choose them to be, and they're not immoral because that would mean the person knows they're choosing bad values, but they're really amoral, meaning it's whatever I want to do. And my values are going to be different than your values, and you simply need to respect my values, even though they might collide. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that means that we live in a position where we're not really sure if there's anything that's absolutely true for anybody. It means absolutes are kind of gone. If we state one as if this is absolutely true, right away we'll face the challenge and the pushback for that. It really what we're hearing people say is, don't you think all religions are the same? No one can know everything about God, so whatever you want to believe is fine because there are no absolutes. But the person who says there are no absolutes is stating that absolutely. Do you see the irony of that? And so we live within this context, and sometimes we feel like we're on that log that's spinning, and how are we going to get our footing? Well, we've been working through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians really is for us the found, a way of understanding the foundation of who God is, how he reveals himself in Christ, what Christ has done for us. And as a result of all that he has done for us, chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we now come to chapter 4 where we read, therefore, therefore, therefore. And we can make the decision that the therefore is just reflecting to the previous sentence. But in actual fact, in chapter 4, it's, as Becky told us, it's sort of the hinge, reminding us of everything before. And as you read these therefores, grammatically it's correct to read the few sentences that precede it. But I want you to keep in mind, it's referring to all that Paul has taught, chapter 1, 2, and 3. This is God. What Christ has done for you and now, because of what he's done, how then shall we live? What I want to suggest to you as an outcome of these verses is that obeying Jesus Christ will inevitably lead you and I to become a virtuous neighbor. That's what I think is the thesis, the summary of these verses. And I get that because if you go to the final text in the series that that Spencer just read for us, it says, therefore be an imitator of God. Well, if you think, I can't do that, I can't create. Well, you do create children, don't you? You know what I'm saying is, there is some likeness, but really when it says be imitators of God, you're right to say, how? Like, in what context? And the answer is, we, we give it to you almost every week, where you live, work, and play. Just be like 
God. Okay, go home and practice. You know what I'm saying is that really is the summary, but what Paul does is he takes away the, the veil of that going, well, how do I do that? What does that really mean? And gives us a series of practical statements. And it's already, as I've prayed, it's a chance for you not only to think about what it is you want to be as a neighbor to people around you, but also how to continue to align yourself to who God is and how he wants to be seen in you. Because one of the things Paul says in another letter is, you are a living letter read by everyone around you. In other words, if people want to know what the gospel is, they should just come and watch you. Does that bring you up short? Well, what it ought to do is remind us that our faith is on display at home, in sport, at school, on the street. You probably are the closest thing to scripture that many people in our nation now read because they don't read the scripture anywhere else. And it should, as Paul says, or Peter says, it should awaken people around you to say, oh, now, how can you live like that? How can you make that choice? Why do you do that thing? Why are you so good, kind, considerate? Why do you do these things? And it gives you an opportunity to say, well, left to myself, I wouldn't do it all. But because of who God is in my life, I now can make this choice. It's the hope that I have, who he is in me and the instructions that he's given me. So the pathway to becoming virtuous, and by definition what it means to be virtuous, is defined with greater clarity in verses 25, chapter 4, verse 25 to chapter 5, verse 2. If you do these things, people are going to say, wow, you're a great neighbor. Be the neighbor everybody wants to live next to is really what this passage is saying. Be like Jesus. Let people see who he is in you. Obeying Jesus inevitably leads us to become virtuous neighbors. The pathway of becoming virtuous is in these, this section, but I want you to know it's possible to live outside this context. What I mean by that is if you look at these things, you could look at them as aspirational. One day, I hope, I can finally get to that, that standard. Or you can look at this, and if you have a fear-based view of God, oh no, this is how he's going to judge me. And you'll see the standard, and you will be already terrified. What I'm suggesting to you is, as we read this passage of scripture, there's one of two ways we can fall into an error as we present it or as we apply it to our lives. Both of those things are true. The first is that we can slide into an error of pragmatism and the second is we could fall into a, an error of moralism. The pragmatist ultimately says, this is good for you. In other words, you should follow Jesus because when you follow Jesus, this is the good you will receive. He will look after you. He will benefit you. He will just bless your life with all these things. Now, I want you to know there is a great deal of that which is true. But there's an error in that that I'm going to sort of uh, peel back and expose. But the other side of it is 
we could look at this and if we have that fear-based view of God, we could say this is what I need to be so God will what? Look after me. You see, the one is saying, I'm in this for what I get. The other one is saying, I'm doing this so that I will get something that I want. The pragmatist says, God is on your side, and this is why you should follow him. The other says, oh boy, you better conform because your alignment is the key to blessing. Let's unpack that and see a middle ground, which is really called grace, and that's been established in chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Because both these perspectives of pragmatism and moralism miss the heart of the gospel, which is, as I've just said to you, the grace of God for us in Christ. And I want to expand this before we get to a catalog of behavior, because if I don't expand it, it's likely that we'll go home with our own construct on what the passage is instead of the construct of grace. So let's start off with by saying the gospel of Jesus is beyond pragmatism pragmatism. Now, I've got a water bowl in my hand. I find it distracting to carry it, but I need to. I just want to explain it. I, I take a lot of antihistamines because I just have all of these allergies, and I find the antihistamines dry me out. And then my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and it's very awkward when I'm preaching. So please indulge me as I sip and chat. It's better than talking like that, right? You, you get the point. I want to be clear, and I think you want me to be clear, so... I'll keep drinking. The gospel water. I knew what you were thinking. You see, I had to say that to you because I knew what you were thinking. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus is beyond pragmatism. It's better than pragmatism. I want to unpack that for you because pragmatism has at its heart a deal with God. You know, maybe you've heard and used this kind of response to someone, the gospel is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I believe that's true. It's certainly true in my case. But when we say it that way, we trust the person who's listening has a framework to understand what we've just said to them. Probably what they're thinking, oh, you've received something good. There's some benefit that you've received. The gospel is the best thing. I've found that it's transformed my life and I'm better because of it. And and this is true. However, if we're sharing for people, with people around us, or believing in our own heart that the gospel gives me what I need, there's a transaction in the basis of that. Do you understand it? I receive Jesus so that. In other words, we, we would subtly move into a relationship that says, God, this is what you do and this is what I do. What is my part? I trust you. What is your part? You be good to me. And we define that goodness as to whatever it is we want. But what if your life in the moment wasn't better because you follow Jesus? I'm suggesting that at times and in a great many situations, being a follower of Jesus Christ can be very challenging for you. The gospel itself advocates a long view of how the gospel is worked out in the life of the follower. But look at the Savior, Jesus, whom we followed. How did it work out for him as the emissary of God, the one who came in the likeness of God and demonstrated who God is in human form? Not so great, right? We've just come through Easter where he's in the garden and he says, let this cup 
pass from me. If anyone could have moved to a place of demanding from God, wanting from God the goodness that he was worthy of, it would have been his son Jesus. And yet what does he pray? Nevertheless, your will be done. Which was what? His death for God's glory. To bring us many sons to him. In the passage then, the weakness of having a pragmatic view can be that we think things should be the way we believe they should be. And our belief at that point could be way off. A few years ago, I traveled to a nation of islands where actually acquired this shirt. And when I was there, I met a group of people who were involved with the disciple-making movement. It was the, is, the largest Muslim country population-wise in the world. A place where standing for Jesus often means hardship. And this disciple-making movement map that you have uh, on the screen behind us, there it is, it, it was amazing for me because one of the things that I observed, and these were national workers, national leaders, who didn't have any seminary or Bible college training, these were people who had discovered by opening up the Bible and reading it who God was, what he had done for them in Jesus, just like the book of Ephesians, and had put their faith in him. And what you're seeing is one then reached three individuals, but those three began to reach more, meaning that the process of multiplication, as they were meeting in small missional communities like we have, was that instead of inviting a person to the group because there needed to be protection, because if someone found out who was in that group, that group came under intense persecution. So rather than bring outsiders into that existing group, the person from the group began a new group with the new interested people. And some of those had gone 16 generations of new groups. I was amazed at hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ. Uh, recently in disciple making a movement a friend of mine was in the Philippines where people who were involved in disciple making all came for a conference together and he met someone from China who had planted 12,000 small group churches and trained then 8,000 over 8,000 leaders most of them women because they were willing and available God on the move in a place where choice of religion isn't free and people need to meet underground same in the country that I'm just describing but what I heard as we met with those leaders was the tragedy that had gripped their lives as followers of Christ some of them have lost their spouses their spouses walked away and that meant they couldn't have access to their wife or child anymore the family took them back and it was like a divorce that's what it ultimately became. Others who lost their jobs. Others who uh, were, their characters were being assassinated and they couldn't find work after they'd found Christ. And yet as we met, there wasn't a single person in the room that wasn't joyfully expressing their faith in Christ. Not one. Why? Because they weren't in it for the good they got, they were in it for the good they had. 
They knew they'd passed from darkness to light. They knew they'd been dead and now they were alive. They understood that they were Christ's own family. This was the experience of Martin Luther, the religious reformer in Germany in the early 1500s. And he wrote a hymn that goes like this. That word being Jesus, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And people sang this song on the way to being martyred. They sang this as a gathering of people because they were reminding themselves it wasn't the good that God does for us in life that we possess. It is the good we possess in Christ. Do you see the difference? Because until you see the difference, your faith is on a slippery log. Because what happens to you when your child dies? What happens to you when the spouse who has promised to be with you forever decides, no, that's too long? What happens to you when an illness strikes and what the doctor tells you isn't what you had forecast for your own life? You understand what I'm saying? These are important questions for us to face so that we would know where God is in the crucible of our experience when we're under pressure and it feels like we're alone. We're not, but we have those feelings, right? The problem that we will eventually encounter if we present or if we think that the gospel benefits us is that it reduces the gospel from the grace of who Jesus is and what he's done for us to the goods we get by believing in God. Do you see the difference? We're not saying there are no good things. We are saying if those are the primary things, then we are missing the better thing of the gospel, which is the, the grace we have in Jesus. You understand that this becomes so powerful us as we share our faith where we live, work, and play. It says, Job reminds us, in his book, chapter 5, verse 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. When the gospel is presented or followed primarily because it's good for us, our eventual disappointment causes us to abandon our pursuit of God for a better life because it didn't work out as we expected. Secondly, the gospel of Jesus is beyond moralism. To understand the heart of mortal moralism, we only need to ask the question, why do what God wants? And the moralist will say, because that's how you find God. If you do what he wants, he knows you're serious about looking for him, and he will give you what? What you want. What I'm suggesting about this is that the moralist is following God as a good guy so that if he has a fear-based view of God, he doesn't get hurt, damaged, destroyed. Instead, he gets the benefit of God. But who is it then that's in charge of grace or salvation in his life? It's the moralist. God loves me because I'm good. I'm being good, so God will love me. 
What that means then is we're under the tyranny of doing the right thing to get God to look after us. Now, you need to understand it's at this point that we're going to find agreement from many of the world religions. In Islam, it will tell its adherents, keep the pillars. Buddhism will tell its followers, keep the eightfold path. Hinduism will tell its devotees to know and keep their dharma. What are they all saying? They're saying the pathway to God is by doing what God wants, so God will give you what it is you need. It's earning your way. It's following the rules. The common thread is to find God, but this is where the gospel differs because what the gospel says to us and it turns this action on its head, why be good because God found you. See the difference? It says within the scriptures in Luke chapter 19 verse 10, this is the gospel of Christ saying to us, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. He didn't say, for heaven's sakes, clean up so I can stand you. The gospel says, I came looking for you, knowing what you were. I see you in all your mess. I love you still. I don't know about you, but I translate that at times in my prayer when I recognize my weakness and my challenge and I say, oh God, aren't you tired of me? Because I'm tired of me. And then we read the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, and the fourth one is patience. He's asking not that you be patient so he will love you. He says when his spirit comes and abides with you, he brings the capacity to be patient that isn't natural to you. I love that. I need that. I think so do we all. When we trust Christ as Savior and Lord, the God we're looking for, we discover, has been looking for us. Uh, the old song says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It wasn't I that found, O oh, Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Meaning it looked like, it felt like I was the one on the journey all the time saying, God's spirit was saying, oh, another step, take another step, take another step. You're almost there. I've been waiting for you. I've been looking for you. I've been wanting you. He came to seek and to save the lost. The striking contrast the gospel presents us is the antidote both to pragmatism and moralism. It, it's simply what we read in the book of Ephesians. But God being rich in mercy, chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. See, what can you bargain with God? You can't add anything to him. You can't even say, well, God, you know, I'm one of the good guys. I've been really trying hard. Because truthfully, when we examine our life, we realize no matter how hard we try, we can't undo what we've already done and we can't keep the promises we keep making and breaking. We need him. The good news is, he wants us. 
He loves us. See, in the grace of Jesus, this undeserved, freely forgiven forgiveness, this favor, the acceptance, cleansing, we know in him ourselves to be loved and wanted and pardoned and forgiven, accepted and cleansed, adopted and so much more. And the relationship was not ours to make. We can't do anything to earn or deserve it. We can only receive it. So why be moral? Why have values? Why form ethics? Why choose to obey him and do what he asks when there's no merit in it? There's no greater blessing. There's no additional favor to be accrued. There is only to give back to him what it is he's begun in us. You see, why be moral? Because we can now choose to honor him and do what he asks. He who loved us first, who loved us best, who will love us last. See, and when we find this place of safety and security and peace, and we're filled with humble gratitude, doing what he asks is transformative in our lives from the inside out because we're not trying to behave on the outside to invite him in. He's on the inside working in us so that we can live out for his glory. And that's where the log loses all its slipperiness. The alignment comes into what we need and we rest in him rather than work to try to rest in him. In summer, summary, as we obey him freely and fall and, and in love for him, we've, we will not find that what he asks to be as difficult as we first imagined. We might look at the list and go, oh, really? Like, man, that's going to be hard for me. To say, take a step, I'm with you. Align yourself to me, I'll fuel you. Walk with me. You won't find it burdensome, you'll find it light. So the answer to pragmatism and moralism, because the greatest good we can receive is what he's done for us and there's no bargain for us to be struck, is grace. And that's Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as his much-loved children. And walk in love as Christ loved himself and gave himself for us. What he's saying is he laid down his life willingly in obedience to the Father so that he could bring us into his family forever. And then he says, okay, kids, do this. Live this way in your community. Be a good neighbor. Now, I made a mistake and I sent Spencer my notes instead of the slides I'd done. But if we had a slide right now that was up there, he kindly took my notes and made slides that we needed this morning instead of in a panic calling me and said, where are your slides? What a great guy, right? He's being a good neighbor. But we would have had a picture of Fred Rogers. It's a lovely day in the neighborhood. Wouldn't you like Fred Rogers to be your neighbor? Wouldn't you like him to be an uncle to your kids? Wouldn't you like someone who says, I'm particularly glad you're my neighbor. Who sees beyond who you are and loves you 
anyway. The answer to pragmatism and moralism is because the greatest good we can receive is what Jesus has done. And, and the point of Ephesians 4 is the gospel story being lived out in our lives. And so what I'm saying to you is we should be the neighbor everyone wants as their new BFF. You know, we want them to come to us and say, you can't move. You are too good a neighbor to lose. Don't we want people to say that to us? Well, then live it out and make it true. And Paul says, here are the ways that you do it. Here, here are four concrete actions. Never lie. No false witness, no false statements. So culturally, this is a little counterintuitive because when someone says to you, oh, Dave, how are you today? You know what we say? Yeah, good, fine. Even though maybe our left arm is dragging down on the ground because we just had a stroke yesterday, we're not going to tell him that and burden him with our physical ills. You know what I'm saying? We've turned it into politeness, but it's actually a form of acceptable lying. Would you agree? Now look, this isn't an excuse for you to go home and say, okay, from now on it's going to be an organ recital. You know, I've got a quiver in my liver. My bowels aren't turning properly. You know, too much information. We don't want to know all of that stuff. But you understand when it says don't lie, it really means tell the truth. Now you're going to have to tell the truth, what? In love, right. So there's a difference than weaponizing the truth. And let me tell you, Christians have weaponized the truth far too long against each other and against their community. We've got to lay down our tools. We'll get to that in a moment. But the first tool we need to lay down is stop lying. Stop lying. It's a challenge for us within our culture when we don't really want to appear to be who we are. We're pretentious. Wear our masks. So we have to live in such a way that we are transparent. In other words, we need to be like Jesus. How do we answer people? Find out how Jesus answered. He's your go-to, always. Telling the truth is key. The second thing we said, Paul says to us, don't misuse your anger. Do you know anger is the safest emotion for a male in our culture to be in touch with? Not so much crying, right? You know what I'm saying? Because emotions are so volatile, meaning they do things inside of us, many of us learn from a young age not to show them. I've been in therapy for three years to figure out emotions, amongst other things, some trauma. I've discovered things that I wished I didn't know that I pressed all of these years. You know what I'm saying? Some of that can be challenging. But I remember saying to my therapist, you know what, when I'm a pastor and someone comes into the office, I'm not doing this anymore so it's safe to tell you that, people would come into my office and they would be pouring out their life and looking for biblical answers and I would say to myself, well, both of us can't be crying here. Somebody's got to think about what to do next. That was me and what did I do? I just turned my emotions off and my therapist said to me, oh, that's really interesting. Did you know you can't choose which emotions to turn off? When you suppress your emotions, you suppress all of them. Huh. I'm a pretty smart man, but that came as a revelation. But it explained what was going on in my life. And I said to her, you know, I don't get this because here I am doing that in an office setting 
and I wonder, why don't I feel? And then I go home and I'm sitting with my wife watching some kind of a chick flick and I'm bawling like a three-year-old. What's going on? And she said, oh, don't you really know? I said, well, if I hazard a guess, it's because I'm not involved in the movie. She said, bingo. Hmm. Anger is a learned response, right? Anger is so frequently misused. It's not that anger should never be shown, but when it's used relationally, it tends to create what? Separation rather than integration. He says, don't misuse your anger. And when you've made a mistake, he says, correct it before the sun sets. Did Jesus ever use anger? The answer is, of course. Cleanse the temple, read the story. How many other times did Jesus use anger? Um, um, trick question? Not really. It's a rare thing. In our culture, it's a very frequent thing. Road rage. Read in the story about a neighbor who shot his neighbor because he was making too much noise. Now, look, sometimes you have those feelings, never act on them. Right? When someone does a stupid thing in front of you and we, you wish your car was a tank, you don't need the devil to plant that thought. You're doing fun on your own, right? Don't misuse anger. Thirdly, keep your mouth clean. What does he mean by that? You have that term foul language. It really means don't use your tongue to destroy. Use your tongue to build up. Wash your mouth. Make sure it's as sanctified as the rest of you in grace. None of your words should corrupt. That means humor, topics, content. Your words should be the agents of the grace you've received, always on duty. Think this way. The fruit of the Spirit should show up in your mouth. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. We forget that one. And self-control. He goes on and he says, there are four foundational, oh, actually, you know, I missed one. Be generous. In other words, if you're a thief, stop stealing. Don't live off what other people have done, but take your work and decide to be generous. One of the features of this congregation is it's generous. It's generous for kids to go to camp. It's generous in missions. It's generous in benevolence. It's generous. It's a mark of the work of Jesus living out in us. Use your time, your tools, your hands, your money, especially in the context of your neighborhood. People you know who need that care. Then there are four foundational postures that will aid you in these four tasks. The first one is this. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, have you ever grieved your kid? Ever grieved your spouse? Ever grieved your friend? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Made them sad because your behavior was wounding, was hurtful, was less than what it should have been. And your friend had to say to you, ouch. My daughter once said to me, dad, that was harsh. right? It was. 
and then it's an opportune moment to be angry, right? Who are you? How dare you? No, I didn't do that, fortunately, on that occasion. I'm not saying I've never done that, but you know what I'm saying. Let the Holy Spirit be the one who sharpens your conscience, makes you sensitive to your behaviors, and don't grieve him. Secondly, it says as another point that fuels these is surrender your weapons. It's a powerful statement in this passage of scripture about what things we're willing to use in relationship as, as we read through this. And it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? But get rid of all of these things, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. Those are all tools we use to exert our rights and demand our due. Just stop it. That's what Paul says. That's not how Christ behaved. As a matter of fact, when Peter picked up a sword and cut off the high priest's ear, what did Jesus say? Put it away, Peter. Picked up the ear and healed the man. They still arrested him. didn't use all of those things we're fond of using to get what we want. And then he says, be kind. Be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You know what forgiveness is? It means you stop keeping the list. You let go of the offenses. You repair relationships. You make it easy to contact. Right? You know, we, we have so many things that we can do that separate us from the people that live right next door to us. And what this passage of scripture is reminding us is that as believers who are the light of Christ in our world, we need to make sure our neighbor friendships are good by taking the initiative, not waiting. When did Jesus decide to forgive you? Now, I'm not talking when did you know it worked for you. When did he decide to forgive you? And the answer is long before you ever knew you needed him, right? Forgive one another. Make the path open. Make it easy. Be available. Forgive as you've been received. It has forgive as you've been forgiven so don't grieve the holy spirit surrender your weapons be kind forgive like you've been forgiven because this is the demonstration that grace is at work within you not for what you get and not so that god will give you what you want neither pragmatic nor moralistic it's fueled by grace now, this is how the Holy Spirit's been working today. He's already troubling you. Because if that was my job, oh my goodness, I would have to say all kinds of things to get you to think what I want you to think. But the Holy Spirit is so wonderful, he's already telling you where to start. Maybe it's that adjustment between pragmatism and moralism. Realizing you're in one of two camps or you've gone back and forth between them. Maybe it is that one of those things 
God, the Holy Spirit, has touched your heart and said, start here, deal with this. Maybe it is you're beginning to think about what it means to be a virtuous neighbor overall, and this is the way you need to start. Maybe it is you need to take the initiative and be kind and forgiving. What I'm saying to you is before you leave, why don't you decide what it is you're going to do, how you're going to act, how you're going to demonstrate your alignment to God today. Because we are his people. If you don't know what it is to have placed your faith in Christ, people are going to be praying at the front. Meaning praying with you. If you want to come and talk more about this, Spencer will be available, others will be available, I will be available. We want you to know what it means to have a relationship with God based on grace, neither pragmatism or moralism. And if you have other questions or concerns, if you have another burden and you simply want to share it with someone and have them pray with you, that's what reunion is for as well. Father, as we've been before you today, I want to thank you for reminding us of who you are and all you've done for us in Jesus. You know us so well, we don't have to rehearse before you where our weaknesses are, although we have that freedom to lay it down in front of you and admit the truth. Thank you that you didn't love us conditionally. If we get our act straight or if we do it all the right way all the time, we realize that there's a process of putting off and putting on that's involved with this. But what we really want is that the light of the gospel would be seen in us. We want to be virtuous neighbors. We want to be people who mark our lives, not just by being nice and friendly, but so that we can speak the gospel kindly and carefully into the people who are willing to hear what motivates us it's the greatest good we can do for them it's the greatest good you've done for us thank you for who you are thank you for loving us as you do thank you for what you've begun and what you're continuing in jesus name